Hey everybody, this is Daryl Cooper and you're listening to the Martyr Made Podcast. This is a short episode, a um, little bit different than what you're used to on the main feed, um, but I am putting the episode here because it's a topic that drives me insane and I want to talk to you about it. I thought I'd put together a little primer for people to go over what I believe is pretty overwhelming circumstantial evidence that Jeffrey Epstein was working for a foreign intelligence agency. It's an interesting topic because in unpacking it, we get to go back through a very interesting period in American history and world history in general in the 1980s when there were a lot of intelligence shenanigans going on It really did come to the surface in various ways, but not in a way that ended with anybody really being held accountable for what was going on. It was a wild time. If you're familiar with the work of researchers like Whitney Webb or Ryan Dawson, you're not going to get anything here that's going to surprise you. Uh, But I just thought it would be good to have it all in one place so that people could get a basic picture of what the evidence is. It turns out, I didn't know this when I started, but uh, that, that this is going to be the first of two episodes on the topic. Uh, the second episode will cover the rest of the story. It'll be out in about a week, uh, but it will be available for Substack subscribers only. And you can all subscribe to the Martyr Made Substack for just $5 a month or $50 a year at martyrmade.substack.com. If you can't tell, I've got... A little bit of a cold. At least I hope that's what it is. Uh, I'm feeling a little bit better, but my voice is a little froggy. But I'll do my best here. So let's get into it. Here we go. I'm content to die for my beliefs. So cut off my head. And make me a martyr. The people will always remember it. All right, look, I know that none of us trust or expect much of our governments these days. That probably applies no matter what country you live in. But I don't think I'm really asking for a lot here. And I'm not going to demand that politicians stop lying or that they stop taking bribes that are dressed up to look like book advances or speaking fees. I'm not asking that their family members stop accepting bribes on their behalf. I don't like any of that, but again, I've learned to moderate my hopes for how far from rock bottom these people are capable of climbing. In fact, I'm at the point where I don't even care about the bribes. Yeah, they can keep them. They can keep the bribes. If I can just make a couple requests. Like, for example, next time that scientists have questions 
about how an infectious disease like, I don't know, how about syphilis develops over time in a human host, maybe we should not give the disease to a bunch of black people and then lie about giving them treatments for decades so that we can watch as a disease slowly destroys their minds and bodies. Maybe we should not do that. Again, I'm asking for the bare minimum here. Or maybe next time a reclusive religious congregation with a weirdo leader comes onto the radar of one of your agencies, how about you arrest the guy while he's out on his morning jog, which he goes on predictably every day, instead of sending Delta Force to Waco, Texas to oversee the massacre of the entire group? How about that? It's not a huge ask. Or, if you want, and I know I'm, I'm starting to get multiple with my requests here, maybe I'm pushing my luck, but maybe if you want to send a bunch of us to war in a foreign country, can it please be for reasons that are not completely made up? Or here's another one. When our intelligence agencies go about their mission of gathering and analyzing information and carrying out covert operations, you know, we understand, we're an understanding people, we get it. Sometimes things can get a little messy, a little morally complicated. But what if, what if next time one of your agents suggests working with a guy who's engaged in large-scale trafficking of children for sex, Maybe someone in your organization says that we should probably not do that. Or is that too much? I know I made a lot of requests. Look, I'll compromise on the first three, okay? Give people diseases, massacre American citizens, you know, launch wars on false pretenses, you know, whatever. But is it too much to ask that if a federal prosecutor overseeing the investigation of a serial pedophile and child trafficker says on the record that he was told to back off by his superiors because the guy, quote, belongs to intelligence, is it too much to ask that just one reporter in all the newsrooms in America would stick a microphone in this guy's face and ask him exactly what the fuck he meant by that? Anyone? Yeah. Well, of course I'm talking about Jeffrey Epstein. It's... You know, it's, it's a situation that seems almost too horrible to be plausible, right? Yeah, sure, intel agencies might have to skirt a bit of bourgeois morality here and there to do their jobs. But surely, every agent of the CIA or FBI would resign in protest if they found out the agency was helping a mass pedophile avoid prosecution, right? Now, I can say with certainty with zero doubt that any one of my 12 closest friends or relatives, if they were in that position, would not keep quiet about it. I have no doubt about that. And so it sounds reasonable to us, to regular people. You know, what kind of people would hear that and just, and just move on? Like, huh, what's that, boss? The mass child sex trafficker has a relationship with intelligence agencies and I should let him go? Agree not to prosecute any of his accomplices, even ones that turn up later that we don't know about for crimes we don't know about yet. Hey, sure, boss, you got it. Like, I I can say that I don't know anybody who would do that. And I'll bet you can say the same about most of the people close to you. And so it just makes sense to regular people with an average understanding of ethics that there's no way the agencies would do that. Until you remember that 
No one in those agencies apparently had a problem working with South American drug lords right as the crack epidemic was consuming American inner cities. And that no one seems to have spoken up when the decision was made to place us into an effective alliance with Al-Qaeda in Syria and Yemen barely a decade after 9-11. You ever remember being asked about that? Remember being asked if we wanted to fight on the same side as Al-Qaeda in Syria and Yemen? Because I don't. But that's not the kind of question that it occurs to a normal person to ask because a normal person thinks there's no way our government would put us into an alliance with Al-Qaeda before the new World Trade Center was even finished rebuilding. But they did. Or how about Afghanistan? Remember when an army captain beat up an Afghanistan army officer that he found raping a little boy? He got in trouble with that. He got kicked out of the army. And the rest of our troops got instructions that they were not to intervene in similar circumstances. Do not intervene if you encounter child rape because bachabazi, the recreational abuse of young boys, was just a cultural difference that they were going to have to get over, learn to be tolerant about. And then come to find out, surprise, surprise, sexual abuse of young boys by our allies in the Afghanistan security forces was pervasive throughout our occupation of the country. Quote, Horrifying abuse at checkpoints makes the boys, many unpaid and unregistered, hungry for revenge and easy prey for Taliban recruitment, often because there is no other escape from exploitative Afghan security force commanders. Practically all of Aruzgan's 370 local and national police checkpoints have bachas, those are little boys, some up to four, who are illegally recruited not only for sexual companionship, but also to bear arms. Again, these are little boys. Some policemen, they said, demand bachas like a perk of the job, refusing to join checkpoints where they are not available. End quote. The Taliban had banned that practice in 1996 and kept the ban in place until the invasion of 2001, when we took over and the ban was no longer enforced. So the Taliban started reaching out to these boys who were being kept as sex slaves by our allies, by the Afghanistan security forces, and saying to them, hey, help us. Kill your guards if you can and run away. Come to us. We'll take you in. That's a pretty easy sell. And so we got instances like this, quote, he said the attacker, this is a boy, a little boy who ended up attacking the police officers, Afghanistan police officers, he said the attacker was the commander's own sex slave, a teenager called Zabihula. Late one night, he went on a shooting spree, killing seven policemen, including the commander, as they slept. End quote. And so we end up in a war where, up until this, this most recent summer, we were told that the enemy was so terrible, that the threat was so great, that we just had no choice but to ally with people who were engaged in systematic mass child rape. There was just no other option. Well, but there are other considerations. You know, there are larger issues at play. The world is not all black and white, and I'm probably oversimplifying things. But I get all that. And that's why I'm limiting my requests. All I'm asking is that the people in our security and intelligence establishments, get back on the same page as the rest of us in considering large-scale child sex trafficking to be beyond the pale.
I start with this because I often find that the biggest hurdle to clear when trying to get people to look squarely at what we know and what we can reasonably infer about the Jeffrey Epstein case is that for most people, it just sounds too horrible to be believable. You know, sure, the government's corrupt, politicians lie, yada, 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 but they wouldn't do that. But we know they would because they have. And they've done much, much worse. It's hard to know where to start this story. And so I'll throw a dart at the map and start with a 2003 Vanity Fair story by the journalist Vicki Ward. Miss Ward was one of the people, one of the few people who was on to Jeffrey Epstein very early, long before his first conviction back in the mid-2000s. Back in the early 2000s, Epstein was still getting press like this in New York Magazine, quote, Jeffrey Epstein, international money man of mystery. He comes with cash to burn, a fleet of airplanes, and a keen eye for the ladies, to say nothing of a relentless brain that challenges Nobel Prize winning scientists across the country and for financial markets around the world. Ever since the Post's page six ran an item about President Clinton's late September visit to Africa with Kevin Spacey and Chris Tucker, on Epstein's customized Boeing 727, the question of the day has been, who in the world is Jeffrey Epstein? End quote. Uh, once again, uh, unsurprisingly, American journalism does not miss an opportunity to be clown itself and to vomit all over the legacy of the real reporters who occasionally used to take up the profession, reporters like Vicki Ward, for example, she was writing for Vanity Fair in the early 2000s when she got an early lead on what the talented Mr. Epstein was up to behind the scenes. This is from the New York Times after Epstein was arrested more recently in 2019. Quote, Days after Jeffrey E. Epstein was arrested and charged with sex trafficking by federal prosecutors, the fallout spilled into the media world with a former Vanity Fair journalist saying that she had been prepared to report on accusations of sexual misconduct against the financier years ago, but that the magazine had declined to print them. The journalist, Vicki Ward, leveled her accusation against the magazine's former editor, Graydon Carter, in several forums, including on her own Twitter account, Slate's What Next podcast, and BuzzFeed's AM to DM talk show. As part of her reporting for an article published in Vanity Fair's March 2003 issue, Miss Ward said, she had collected on-the-record accusations against Mr. Epstein from three women, two of whom said they were victims of sexual assault. Those accusations did not make it into the published version, end quote. And so you think, well, look, a magazine's got to be careful, right? Vanity Fair's a big publication. They've reported on controversial stories in the past. And they got the experience to know where they stand. So maybe the stories didn't get through the magazine's tight vetting process. Maybe legal wouldn't let it through. Well, no. In fact, according to Miss Ward, the story had already been through legal review and was approved with the accusations included. But then, just before the article went to print... All right. In recent months, the press has been digging into news about the late Jeffrey Epstein, his powerful friends, and the allegations that he sexually exploited dozens of underage girls. For years, the media had paid only intermittent attention to the Epstein story until an investigative series last year in the Miami Herald. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik's story might help explain why. It includes an early morning visit, a bullet, and a dead cat. 
One morning some years ago, Vanity Fair's editor-in-chief, Graydon Carter, arrived at the magazine's offices in Midtown Manhattan. A man was standing still, by himself, in the magazine's reception area behind locked glass doors. It was Epstein. John Connolly was a Vanity Fair contributing editor who reported on crime and scandal. Jeffrey had somehow gotten into the Vanity Fair's office before Graydon one day, and uh, he was torturing Graydon. Connolly says Epstein repeatedly besieged and berated Carter, then and in subsequent calls, don't report on the young women. Jeffrey Epstein would terrorize people. Vanity Fair eagerly dissected the missteps and foibles of society's elites and eagerly rubbed shoulders with them. And for years, Graydon Carter led the way on both. In 2002, Carter assigned a reporter to find out more about Jeffrey Epstein. Just who is this enigmatic financier and why is he flying around with Bill Clinton and other celebrities? Here's that reporter, Vicki Ward. At the time, it was two-pronged. You know, the mystery about Jeffrey Epstein was how he had made his money. Ward spoke on Morning Edition last month. It was also known that he would gather New York's rich and famous for dinner parties at his home, but there would be these very young women. The women were always part of the Jeffrey Epstein story. In March 2003, Vanity Fair did publish a piece by Ward taking a tough look at Epstein's lavish lifestyle and questioning the origins of his fortune. Connolly says Carter soon called to share an ominous development. The day it came out, there was a live bullet put on Graydon's, you know, his outside his house in Manhattan. Even in the absence of any evidence Epstein was involved, Connolly tells NPR that both Carter and he considered the bullet a clear warning. That wasn't a coincidence. Another former colleague tells NPR of a similarly anguished call from Carter about the bullet. In statements to NPR, Carter says the magazine never held back on Epstein because of any sense of threat or intimidation. Instead, Carter says Ward's reporting did not pass the legal threshold for publication. He says Vanity Fair took legal requirements seriously, especially when the subject was a private person who's therefore rigorously protected under libel laws. And he said Ward did not have three sources who met the magazine's legal threshold. For the first time, however, Maria and Annie Farmer are confirming publicly they spoke to Vicki Ward on the record in 2002. Their mother, Janice Farmer, says she did too. And they tell NPR they were crestfallen Vanity Fair didn't report their allegations of exploitation. I think it made it more difficult to not only get victims to speak out, but to get witnesses to speak out. David Boyce is a lawyer for the Farmer Sisters. It was discouraging. I think it helped create the impression among many of the victims that the media was under Epstein's control, that Epstein had all this power. By late 2006, John Connolly says he was interviewing other women in South Florida to see if there was another story for Vanity Fair to do as authorities investigated Epstein. Connolly tells me Carter soon received another shock. L- let me stop you right there. When you, do you said a dead cat's head was put outside Graydon Carter's house? Uh, it was put on the stoop of his home up in the country. It was done to t- intimidate, no question about it. And it worked. Yeah, it did. Connolly says Carter called him to express anxiety for the safety of his children. Others tell NPR the dead cat was the talk of the office. And Connolly says he voluntarily stopped pursuing the subject for Vanity Fair. Well, it's natural to ask how someone like Epstein can get away with that. Sure, he's rich, but so was Bill Cosby. Being Speaker of the House of Representatives did not save Denny Hastert. It's very interesting. You know, we, we've all heard the saying about journalism, the old saying, if it bleeds, it leads, meaning the news media is biased toward sensationalism in general. 
But if that's true, if they're just looking for sensationalism, it's fair to wonder why every newspaper in the land does not have investigative teams devoted to the Jeffrey Epstein story. Billionaire playboy with deep connections to the rich and powerful running a massive, multi-state, underage sex trafficking operation. Corroborated accounts from accusers about very well-known people being involved. A federal prosecutor saying he was told by, to back off by his superiors because Epstein belongs to intelligence. I mean, at the height of the Me Too purge, news outlets devoted teams of reporters to investigating important people for anything that might get them another scalp. You know, the combination of gossip columns, salaciousness, and reader interest with the conferred seriousness of reporting that was part of a movement for gender equality, it was just too good to pass up. But if there was ever a target-rich environment for media outlets fighting tooth and nail for audience share, it's the Jeffrey Epstein story. But no corporate news outlet seems to want anything to do with it. How could that be? It's not that they've looked deeply into it and just concluded that there's nothing there worth further investigation. That didn't happen. And in any case, that's never stopped them before if they think they've got a story with the kind of guaranteed ratings that Epstein brings. Again, there have been some really beloved and powerful people. Think Denny Hastert, who, if you're a little younger and unaware, uh, Denny Hastert is the highest-ranking U.S. official ever to serve a prison sentence. He was the Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives, so second in line to the presidency, right behind the vice president. Guy with the same juice that Nancy Pelosi carries today. You don't get to a position like Speaker of the House by public acclamation. You know, it's not, a, it's not an American Idol vote-by-phone kind of thing. The people who get fingered for positions at that level come in two types. They've either spent decades building a very powerful social network so that when they're jostling with other power players who want that position, they've got more artillery to call in for backup. Or they're puppets or front men put up by others who think that they can control things from behind the scenes. Denny Hastert was a bit of both. He was a very powerful guy in Washington, but he was easy to control for anyone who knew his secret, which was that Speaker of the House of Representatives, Denny Hastert, was a, quote, serial child molester, in the words of the judge who eventually sentenced him to prison. And this was not in the early 1800s or something, by the way, folks. This was the Speaker of the House until 2007. Isn't that interesting? With all the mud that's flung back and forth between Democrats and Republicans. I mean, they call each other traitor, terrorist, murderer, Nazi, communist. And so isn't it weird that almost nobody even remembers that the most powerful Republican congressman was imprisoned for molesting children less than 15 years ago? You think the Democrats would be just, they would just be carpet bombing that fact all over the place. Reminding us every day about it, and, and with some justice. And this is a guy, Hastert, who built his early political career on this image of being a teacher and a coach and a mentor to young boys, and he was a straight-up predator. But nobody wants to talk about it. It's one of the things that nobody really wants to talk about, to the point that most people, if you bring it up, and even people who remember it from the time, they're like, oh yeah, they kind of remember, but it's faded out of public memory. I can understand why people don't want to talk about it. I don't really want to talk about any of this stuff either. But maybe the people who should be talking about it 
are worried that if the public starts asking some pretty basic questions, like how does a literal serial child molester rise through the ranks for decades to become the most powerful man in Congress without anybody noticing what he was up to? Why, when he was caught, did he get 13 months in prison when we routinely give decades to drug offenders and people running you know, Ponzi schemes and financial schemes? Or think about Bill Cosby, who I mentioned, or even Tiger Woods or Harvey Weinstein. When the eye of Sauron turned its gaze in their direction, that was it for them. And not to compare Tiger to what the other two were accused of, but just in the sense that there was this embarrassing scandal, this devastating scandal, and it didn't matter that they were rich or powerful or had powerful friends or that a lot of people were invested in their success. It did not matter. And you think about this. If, if Bill Gates or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos got hauled in with dozens of underage girls accusing them of sexual assault, each of them independently corroborating the other's accounts, accounts that sync up with flight logs and visitor records and known travel of other people that they say were present, sure, those guys would have certain advantages, like being able to hire the most expensive lawyers or maybe being able to intimidate the girls into silence or just benefiting from some residual public goodwill if it goes to trial. But if they couldn't keep those girls quiet, and they couldn't intimidate them, and they didn't have a good story to explain their corroborated accounts, those guys would be on their way to prison. And also, they'd be in the headlines every day, because it's a crazy story with guaranteed public interest. And so the obvious question is, how is it that this guy, Jeffrey Epstein, who, who's rich and prominent, but he's not Bill Gates rich and prominent. You know, maybe he was in control of a couple billion dollars, and, and not all of it his, which is a lot, but it's not the kind of money that can put the U.S. Department of Justice off you when there's dozens of underage girls willing to testify that you sexually assaulted them. How is it that this guy seems to be able to dictate terms to the U.S. Department of Justice. These are the people who took down John Gotti and Denny Hastert and Pablo Escobar. They weren't afraid to do that. This is Amy Robach from ABC News, an anchor on the news show 2020. You may have heard this. It was released by Project Veritas a couple years ago. I've had the story for three years. I've had this interview with Virginia Roberts. We would not put it on the air. Um, first of all, I was told, who's Jeffrey Epstein? No one knows who that is. This is a stupid story. Um, then the palace found out that we had her whole allegations about Prince Andrew and threatened us a million different ways. Um, we were so afraid we wouldn't be able to interview Kate and Will that we that also quashed the story. And then, um, and then Alan Dershowitz was also implicated in because of the planes. She told me everything. She had pictures. She had everything. She was in hiding for 12 years. We convinced her to come out. We convinced her to talk to us. Um, it was unbelievable what we had. Clinton. We had everything. I, I tried for three years to get it on to no avail. And now it's all coming out. And it's like these new revelations. And I freaking had all of it. I, I, I'm so pissed right now. Like every day I get more and more pissed because I'm just like, oh my God. We, it was, um, what, what we had was unreal. Other women backing it up. Hey, yep. Brad Edwards, the attorney, three years ago saying, like, on, like, 
we there will come a day when we will realize Jeffrey Epstein was the most prolific pedophile this country has ever known. And I had it all three years ago. So do I think he was killed? A hundred percent. Yes, I do. Because you want he made his whole living blackmailing people. Yeah. There were a lot of men in those planes, a lot of men who visited that island, a lot of powerful men who came into that apartment. I knew immediately. <clears throat> and they made it seem as though he made that suicide attempt two weeks earlier, but his lawyers claimed that he was roughed up by his cellmate around the neck. That was all like to plant the seed. And then that's why I really believe it. Like really believe it. See, now we're getting somewhere. Who would have enough juice to suppress a story like this? Maybe not Bill Gates, but maybe the Queen of England. Maybe a guy like Bill Clinton, who was groomed for his role early on, first as a Rhodes Scholar and then at Georgetown, where he studied under Carol Quigley with, with Prince Turkey Al-Faisal in his class, the longtime head of Saudi intelligence. And Bill Clinton was in deep with the CIA in the 80s when Colombian drug lords were flying their cocaine into Arkansas when he was governor there. And so maybe a guy like that. Now, Epstein was not powerful himself, but he had backing from some of the most powerful networks in the world, partly because, as Amy Robach said, he likely had some very dark blackmail on some very important people, and partly because of who he was gathering that blackmail for, which I think is the much more interesting and fruitful question. So let's dig into that. Anytime you're dealing with questions involving intelligence agencies, you are going to find yourself wading through a lot of circumstantial evidence. You'll run into the same thing if you try to investigate the intelligence agency's more rambunctious cousins, organized crime syndicates. And that's by design. Everybody has a vested interest in keeping secrets. They know what happens to people who don't. And so you're not going to find written orders with signatures and detailed explanations of each party's role in the conspiracy. The evidence that Jeffrey Epstein was working with an intelligence agency is mostly circumstantial. It's likely to stay that way. But cases can be built on circumstantial evidence if it piles up high enough that the burden is shifted to the other side to make their case for why this is all one giant string of coincidences and misunderstandings. I'm working on this while the jury is still deliberating the fate of Ghislaine Maxwell. Ghislaine Maxwell was Jeffrey Epstein's occasional girlfriend, apparently, and According to federal prosecutors and many of his accusers, she helped recruit and groom young girls to be abused by Jeffrey Epstein and that she would also participate in the abuse herself. That's what she's on trial for. A lot of people were hoping the Maxwell trial would bring out a bit of the truth that died with Jeffrey Epstein in his prison cell. Uh, but, you know, really, that was this courtroom is not the place to make that case. And so those people have been disappointed. If the prosecution starts veering off the main case, 
namely four known, identifiable, on-the-record victims of Epstein, as well as people who know them, testifying that Maxwell participated in sexual abuse to get that conviction. And they start talking about Prince Andrew and Bill Clinton and Donald Trump or what that guy meant when Epstein, when he said Epstein belonged to intelligence. Ghislaine Maxwell is not charged with any of that. And the job of investigating those related matters should, in an ideal world, or at least a moderately functional one, fall to the news media and maybe to the legitimate counterintelligence mission of the FBI. But this world is, of course, neither ideal nor functional, so instead you get me. There are researchers who have done a lot of legwork on the Epstein story. People like Whitney Webb and Ryan Dawson. Uh, if, if you're familiar with the work of those people, you're not going to learn really anything new here. I'm trying to put everything together in one place to kind of give people a brief. And, uh, you know, if, if you've read whole books on this topic and everything, there's going to be things in here that I leave out. I just want to hit a lot of the key points to give people a baseline understanding of what we know and can reasonably infer about this situation. It's only been very recently that some mainstream sources were forced to admit that there are some interesting questions here. Rolling Stone ran a story that was headlined, Was Jeffrey Epstein a Spy? It was written by our friend Vicki Ward, formerly of Vanity Fair. Quote, Back in 2002, when I was reporting on Jeffrey Epstein's finances for Vanity Fair magazine, he was not a household name. During that time, I paid a visit to the Federal Medical Center, Devons and Devons, Massachusetts, to meet with an inmate, one Stephen Hoffenberg. We sat in a little room near a recreation area, Hoffenberg dressed in the requisite orange jumpsuit, while I, several months pregnant with twins, was dressed per prison requirements, as, shapely as, po as shapelessly as possible. It was an absolutely intriguing meeting. Hoffenberg was serving 18 years in prison for committing a $450 million Ponzi scheme. In the 1980s, he'd been running Towers Financial, a debt collection and reinsurance business, and had worked alongside Epstein, who was a paid consultant. Hoffenberg told me that Epstein plans to turn, planned to turn Towers into a global colossus through illegal means. Hoffenberg told me with a sad grin that he represented a problem for Epstein because while they were working together, Epstein had confided in him as to how, exactly, he made a career out of conning people and institutions, not least because the idea was that they would do it together. Hoffenberg said that Epstein had a term for the perfect execution of the grift. He called it playing the box, which meant that he ensured that even if his crime was uncovered, the victim would be unable to do anything about it, either because of social embarrassment or because the money was tucked away in a place where they couldn't, either couldn't find or couldn't get it. This, again, this, this interview is from 2002, just before anybody knew who Epstein was. What Hoffenberg had failed to realize, he told me, is that Epstein would con him. Epstein would take $100 million of Towers' money, move it offshore, and meanwhile cooperate with U.S. prosecutors against Hoffenberg, who was unable to do anything about this because he'd pleaded guilty, which meant that there was no trial and therefore no discovery. I can't prove all of Hoffenberg's claims, but some of them are accurate. I have discovered, for example, that Epstein certainly did cooperate against Hoffenberg and gave at least three interviews to prosecutors, and that had the case gone to trial, a source with knowledge says it would have likely turned out far worse for Epstein than for Hoffenberg. 
Hoffenberg also knew something else Epstein wanted hidden, according to Hoffenberg. He claimed that Epstein moved in intelligence circles. End quote. So this is in 2002, before Epstein was ever arrested the first time or the second time, before any accusations about him had publicly surfaced. And his business partner, he and Hoffenberg worked closely for several years, is telling a reporter back in 2002 that Epstein was connected to intelligence agencies. It would be just five or six years later, in 2007 or 2008, that the federal prosecutor down in Florida, who was overseeing Epstein's case, Alex Acosta, was told, according to his his sworn testimony, that he was told by his superiors to back off of Epstein because Epstein, quote, belongs to intelligence. Back to Ward, quote, The Hoffenberg-Epstein relationship was not something Epstein, then pitching himself to Vanity Fair as a money manager extraordinaire for billionaires only, had volunteered to me. So when I gingerly raised Hoffenberg to Epstein and mentioned that I had documentation showing that the two were linked, the financier turned really nasty. He maintained he hardly knew Hoffenberg. He just consulted briefly on a couple of deals, that he'd not been involved in any prosecution of Hoffenberg, and that if I wrote any different, things would turn out badly for me. Here's exactly what he said. If there's any implication of wrongdoing, I will take legal action against you personally. I'm telling you so you understand. I will be as harsh as I possibly can personally. Not for the magazine, but you. Because I had this discussion with you. This relationship is with you. You shouldn't risk your future for a job. And back to Ward. Now Epstein's sensitivity regarding Hoffenberg was equal to his sensitivity on what he called the girls. He went berserk if you mentioned either subject. In hindsight, one has to wonder if Hoffenberg presented an equally big problem as the girls would. Hoffenberg told me that in the 1980s, after Epstein left Bear Stearns in ignominious circumstances, Epstein was trained in moving money offshore and that a mentor of Epstein's was someone Hoffenberg knew, a British defense contractor who died in 2011 named Douglas Leese. Hoffenberg claimed that Leese was an arms dealer. Lisa's son Julian says that's not true, but the UK parliamentary record does mention Lease in reference to the Alyamama arms deal of the early 1980s. I remember distinctly that in our first meeting, Hoffenberg told me that Lease was pivotal in understanding Jeffrey's M.O., because Lease had introduced him not only to aristocratic Europeans, who Epstein subsequently fleeced, but to all sorts of people in the arms business, including the late Turkish-born businessman Adnan Khashoggi and, allegedly, the late media mogul Robert Maxwell. Back in 2002, I didn't pay much attention to this. This was because Epstein breezily threw me off. First, Epstein told me he'd never met Maxwell, and I asked him twice if he knew Lise, whom whom I had never heard of, and Epstein said no. The second time, he elaborated, Douglas Lise, I think he was the father of somebody I knew? I think his son was friendly with Ferranti. That's where that whole crowd comes in that you asked me about a long time ago. I think his name was Nicholas. It was sort of that 66th Street building. I think they might have all lived there. So I forgot about Lease, and I didn't bother to pursue the notion that Epstein had known Maxwell. End quote. Those three people that Miss Ward just mentioned, 
Douglas Lease, Adnan Khashoggi, and Robert Maxwell. Um, those, those names will be familiar to people who have spent some time researching the deep politics of the late 70s and throughout the 1980s. Sir Douglas Lease was a British arms broker, kind of a backroom deal maker, as well as an agent of British intelligence, according to Stephen Hoffenberg and others, who, who knew Lease and Epstein at the time, back in the 80s when they were associated. Lease is supposed to have been one of the key brokers of the largest arms deal in UK history with Saudi Arabia. It took place back in the 1980s. Lease worked with a Saudi counterpart, another sort of guy who operated in the shadows in those liminal spaces, you know, between sovereign entities, another arms broker named Adnan Khashoggi, who we just mentioned. And Khashoggi was this larger-than-life sort of caricature of a decadent Arabian prince. You know, he's not a Saudi prince, but uh, just throwing around a ton of money, everything gold, everything big. Donald Trump actually bought his yacht after Khashoggi eventually went to jail later on. And his name, his last name should sound familiar. He's the uncle of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist who was murdered and chopped up by Saudi agents in the kingdom's embassy in Turkey in 2018. So this is a family that's close to power. Khashoggi was very close to both Saudi and Israeli intelligence. And was all, he, was, he, was, he almost served as a... I mean, almost official go-between for the two governments, kind of an off-the-books diplomat. Back in the 1980s, when the Reagan administration wanted to get weapons illegally to Iran during the Iran-Iraq war, they asked Israel for help because Israel shared the same interest. You know, they Obviously, Israel and Iran hate each other now, but back then, right after the revolution, when Saddam Hussein invaded Iran, what they were really worried about was Saddam Hussein and him getting too powerful if he conquered too much of it. So, so yeah, the Reagan administration wanted to get weapons to Iran to prolong the war. They ask Israel for help. And what does Israel do? Israel calls on the services of Adnan Khashoggi to make it happen. Both Khashoggi and Lise were the kind of guys that you called when you were a government that needed something done, but done discreetly. Lease was the bagman bringing bribes to Saudi and British officials to make sure that the right companies got paid off in their big arms deal. Adnan Khashoggi was an arms trafficker with connections all over the world who knew how to work around things like customs agents and national borders. Well, Epstein gets close with both of these guys in the 1980s. He worked with both of them. And based on the above-ground information, it's kind of hard to see what it is exactly that he would have been doing with them. Epstein was already on a private plane headed to a meeting at the Pentagon with Douglas Lease in 1981 when Epstein is just 28 years old and hasn't done anything, really, when you look at his actual resume up to that point. I mean, let's take a moment, and it will only take a moment because there's not much here to review what we know about Epstein up to this point in his life. In 1981, when he's on that plane with Douglas Lease, Epstein had just left his job at the investment firm Bear Stearns after only five years. And he left under a cloud due to a regulatory violation. He was forced out. In a deposition years later, investigators were hammering Epstein with questions about insider trading all the way to the CEO of the company. 
Well, before working at Bear Stearns, he had worked for two years teaching high school math, a job that he left amidst complaints that he was being inappropriate with his female students. Surprise, surprise. And that's it. That's it. That's his resume up to this point. He's a college dropout, but somehow got hired to teach mathematics at Dalton School, an elite private school in New York, who presumably could hire any high school math teacher in the country, but went with this guy who had no college degree and no experience teaching. One of his students was the child of Ace Greenberg, who's a pretty well-known vice president at Bear Stearns, the big investment bank. And Epstein's supposed to have befriended Greenberg and talked his way into a Wall Street job. So he apparently starts out as a junior trader, but soon gets moved into a different area with the firm. Bear Stearns CEO Jimmy Kane, who remained close to Epstein years later, and who ran his shop in a way that Epstein would have appreciated, uh, said, quote, He was not your conventional broker saying, buy IBM or sell Xerox. Given his mathematical background, we put him in our special products division, where he would advise our wealthier clients on the tax implications of their portfolios. He would recommend certain tax-advantageous transactions, He's a very smart guy and has become a very important client for the firm as well, end quote. So let me translate that for the kids in the back. Epstein's job at Bear Stearns was to help rich people hide their money. And he did it for some very rich and some very important people, like Charles Bronfman, a billionaire from the Seagram's liquor fortune, whose name will come up again later, And so that probably explains why Epstein maintained a strong relationship with Bear Stearns and personally with Jimmy Kane and Ace Greenberg, even after being forced out of the company for attracting the attention of regulators, because he got caught doing exactly what they were paying him to do. Maybe he got a little overzealous with it. And so now a picture, the beginnings of a picture, starts to emerge. Why would high-powered arms brokers like Douglas Lease be on a private plane headed to a meeting at the Pentagon with a 28-year-old college dropout, a failed high school math teacher, and junior trader who just got fired from his investment banking job. He's there because he's not looking for a math tutor or for investment advice. He's looking for someone who knows how to hide and launder money. And that's what Epstein had spent five years at Bear Stearns learning how to do. In later interviews... Epstein was always coy about his business during this period, but he was more open with it with people who knew him back in the past. He said he was a financial bounty hunter. That's what he was employed as after he left Bear Stearns for a few years in the early 80s. He was a financial bounty hunter. A guy named Jesse Kornbluth, who was friends with Epstein in the 1980s, says that Epstein told him that he consulted for governments and companies and wealthy individuals to help them recover stolen money, and that he also sometimes worked with people who had stolen a lot of money to help them hide it. Another guy who knew Epstein in the 1980s says basically the same thing. Epstein told him he was a financial bounty hunter who specialized at hiding and finding money, and he also said that Epstein was one way or another connected to intelligence agencies. Well, Epstein had concocted this ridiculous story about what he was up to in those years after he left Bear Stearns and started managing money himself. He said his firm only accepted accounts of a billion dollars or more, which is just absurd. 
You know, this guy's under 30 years old. He has no track record. No one's ever heard of any big trades he's made. But to even get him on the phone, you not only have to be a billionaire, but you have to have a billion dollars to invest just with him. It's just so stupid. I mean, one Wall Street guy who knew him back then tells a story about how he thought one time that he would do Epstein a solid. And so a wealthy friend of his was looking for a money manager to manage over $600 million for him. And so this guy offered to set Epstein up with him, but Epstein turned him down. Not because his client list was full or he was too busy, but because the account was just too small for him to bother with. Now, that's just obviously absurd. Someone with $600 million to invest doesn't audition for his money manager. They audition for him. Especially in the 1980s, that's like a billion and a half dollars now. If you go to Goldman Sachs with a billion and a half dollars to invest, the CEO of the firm will greet you at the door before taking you on his private elevator to a conference room where vice presidents of the company will give you a presentation explaining how you're going to have a whole team of analysts and traders assigned specifically to your account and how they're going to be able to draw on data and intelligence streams from around the world and how he'll be first in line for lucrative private investments and IPOs and mergers that are handled by Goldman Sachs. You know, this is a kind of red carpet treatment you could expect at the most powerful investment bank in the country if you showed up with that kind of money. And supposedly this random guy who nobody really knows, who's been managing money for a few years on his own supposedly, just blows it off like it's beneath his notice. It's just silly. And I think it's pretty obvious what was going on which is that he didn't want the account because Jeffrey Epstein was not really running a hedge fund. People went around to players on Wall Street after the whole Epstein story blew up and asked people, people who'd know, have any of you guys ever worked with this dude? Do you know anyone who has worked with him or done a deal with him? Have you heard of any big deals he's done or big trades he's made? Someone like Epstein... Just to explain to some to some of you who, who, who aren't familiar with this world, someone like this guy who is supposedly managing enough money for billionaires that his personal fees, which are often you know, kind of 1% of the year's profit is kind of standard. So if you're managing a billion dollars and the investments make 10%, 10% of a billion is 100 million. You as the manager get 1% of that. So a million dollars that year. Well, Epstein's making way more than a million. He's got the largest private residence in New York City. It's nine stories tall, like 40 or 50,000 square feet. It's worth $70 million. He's got the largest private residence in the state of New Mexico on a 7,500-acre ranch. He's got a private island with a temple on it, a fleet of aircraft, more homes all over the world, and he was supposedly a billionaire, but you don't become a billionaire making $10 million or $20 million a year. That's not going to get you there. To get the kind of money that Epstein was showing, and to get it in a relatively short period of time, really just less, less than a decade, six or seven years, and he seems to be fully ramped up, you'd have to be making moves in the market that the whole world would see happening. Billionaires don't add a few shares of Microsoft to their E-Trade accounts Billionaires take a position in the company, meaning 
They have meetings with various brokers who pull together enough shares and structure the purchase in a way that doesn't absorb all the liquidity and make the market go bonkers. Well, you don't do that for years without anyone else on Wall Street working with you or knowing anyone who worked with you or knowing about any deals or trades you've made or anybody who worked for you. A hedge fund is not just a guy at his computer making trades either. Hedge funds have offices full of analysts and traders and economists and mathematicians and accountants, you name it. It's a company. It's, it's a whole operation. Epstein didn't have any of that, as far as we're aware. From Ms. Ward's 2003 article, quote, Why do billionaires choose him as their trustee? Because the problems of the mega-rich, he tells people, are different from yours and mine, and his unique philosophy is central to understanding those problems. This is Epstein. Very few people need any more money when they have a billion dollars. The key is to not have it do more harm than anything else. You don't want to lose your money. End quote. Well, again, a, a billionaire can have anybody manage his money. Okay, the biggest and most powerful firms in the world would fight over his account. But they're supposedly giving it to this nobody who got pushed out of his firm for a regulatory violation and where he wasn't even working as a trader, but a special products engineer, a field in which he'd be much more limited on on his own without the institutional backing. And they're not giving it because he's just so brilliant and this, this eccentric genius who just has some intuition. He's going to double our money. Therefore, we're going to take a risk by giving our billion dollars to this guy. No, it's just they're giving it to him just because they want to preserve what they have. Well, that's just not how the world works. You give your money to any investment bank in the world and say, structure this in a conservative way that's going to make sure it's robust to turbulence and inflation and that I just don't lose what I have. Any, any investment bank in the, in the world can do that for you. That's not why you go to a guy like Jeffrey Epstein. In the real world, you go to a guy like Jeffrey Epstein to get things done that you don't want anybody else knowing about. And it's easy to think of money laundering like it's sort of an afterthought to the criminal underworld. This boring but necessary appendage to the real crimes, you know. But money laundering is, is as central to organized crime as it is to intelligence operations. Nothing happens without it. And you're running some off-the-books operation like, I don't know, illegally selling weapons to Iran in order to raise money to illegally supply the Nicaraguan Contras. It's not like Iran can just wire $800 million to the CIA's checking account. These are massive sums of money that are really only dealt with by institutions. And you've got to move it around across board. I mean, you know, think about like a, like a four-foot-high pallet of cash of $100 bills is about $50 million. So moving around this, this, this kind of money, you have to be able to do it through institutions. And if you're doing that, then you're risking having it detected and tracked by people you don't want seeing it. You got to move it around again across borders without anyone knowing, or if they find out, to make sure that there's a great legitimate sounding story, at least on first pass, about where this money came from and what it's doing. This is what Epstein learned to do at Bear Stearns. It's what he did there. And it helps explain why he was on a private plane with Douglas Lease the same year that Bear Stearns dropped him. 
It also helps explain why Lise would introduce him to another big arms dealer like Adnan Khashoggi. Guys like that don't need a banker. They've got bankers. But they always need good money launderers. The third name that I mentioned a few minutes ago was Robert Maxwell, the British publishing mogul. Douglas Lease introduced Epstein to Maxwell in the mid-1980s, and after getting to know him for a couple years, Robert Maxwell introduced Epstein to his favorite daughter, Ghislaine Maxwell. This is in 1988. Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein, as is now well known, became lovers and confidants and partners in crime, but she also seems to have had a role assigned to her by her father as a sort of all-in-one manager or handler of Jeffrey Epstein. Through her father, she had access to the wealthy and powerful people that we now associate with Epstein, guys like Prince Andrew or the Clintons or whatever. It was through Ghislaine that he got to know these people. And she seems to have been something like his, I don't know, social manager. She would make connections and set him up with people, bring him to parties and events and manage his calendar. And his job was to show up and be Jeffrey Epstein, I guess. And her job was to set everything up and kind of manage the situation. Well, her father, Robert Maxwell, is a very interesting guy. A lot of people don't remember him today, especially in the U.S., or if they do, it's only because he's the father of the notorious Ghislaine Maxwell. But he was one of the most famous men in Britain and one of the wealthiest and most connected men on planet Earth until his mysterious death in 1991. Robert Maxwell's birth name was Abraham Lieb, and it would change a dozen times throughout his life. When he was 15, his name was Jan Ludwig Hyman Benjamin Hoch and Nazi Germany had just annexed a large chunk of his home country of Czechoslovakia. The next year, Hungary absorbed what was left, and Jan, coming from an Orthodox Jewish family, sees the writing on the wall, and so he escapes to France in May 1940, where he joins up with the Czechoslovakian army in exile just in time for France to be overrun by the Germans. And so Jan is forced to escape again, this time to England, posing as a French soldier and using a surname that he caught from a brand of French cigarettes. He's a very resourceful guy, especially as a young man, 16, 17-year-old kid. Once he gets to England, he links up with Czechoslovak and Zionist groups there, but eventually becomes frustrated with the Czechoslovak government in exile, and so he joins up with the British military, first an engineering corps, and then in 1943, he hooks up with a combat unit that saw action from the Normandy invasion all the way to Berlin. He saw plenty of combat. He also participated in ugly business like interrogating captured Nazis. Later, he'd be implicated in a war crimes investigation for murdering unarmed German civilians. In January 1945, just a few months before the war's end, he was pinned by British General Bernard Montgomery with a military cross for storming a machine gun nest. That's The military cross was the second highest British military award at the time, same as a Distinguished Service Cross or a Navy Cross in the U.S. So that's, that's, a, that's a high award. Jan made sergeant during the war and then received an officer's commission at the rank of captain right as the war was wrapping up in 1945. 
Well, again, you can tell this guy's a hustler. Okay, escapes two countries, has five or six names, joins two armies and fights his way through France to Germany all before his 25th birthday. And the guy's a hustler and a grinder and he gets things done when he sets his mind to it. After the war, Jan was attached to the British Foreign Office and spent the next two years working for the British government's PR and propaganda outfit in Berlin where they put his considerable language skills to work. According to one of his biographers later, he was eventually fluent in nine languages, which I don't know, maybe that's a bit exaggerated, but certainly he spoke at least four or five. In 1946, he was naturalized as a British citizen, and he used the contacts that he made during the war, as well as those that he had from before the war back in Eastern Europe, to start up an import-export business between the UK and the East. Now, most, if not all, of Jan Hook's immediate family had been killed during the war. And like many Jews at the time, he was looking to Palestine as the only permanent solution to their troubles in Europe and elsewhere. Well, Zionism presented a bit of a problem because it ran headlong into official British interests and policy after the war. After facilitating it for years, Britain had begun severely restricting Jewish immigration to Palestine just before the outbreak of war because of the terrible effects that the emerging Jewish-Palestinian conflict was having on Britain's relations with the Arab countries. And they continued this policy, more or less, after the war. By this point, the Zionists believe, the Zionists in Palestine believe that they're ready to handle the Arabs on their own, if only the British would simply get out of the country. But it never was the official British policy to hand Palestine over to Jewish control and They'd spent a lot of time and money fighting for and developing the region over the years, so the British were not eager to be driven off. And so to help motivate them, Zionist terrorists began attacking British personnel in Palestine and assassinating British officials in other countries. They blew up the British headquarters at the King David Hotel, killing 91 people. They sent mail bombs to British officials back in England. They even sent a mail bomb to the White House addressed to President Truman, according to a memoir written by the man who served as the head of the White House mailroom under six presidents, uh, and an account that's confirmed by Truman's own daughter in her memoir. You're martyr-made listeners, so you already know this story. The Zionists still had their boosters in the British government, uh, but by the late 40s, relations had deteriorated enough that Things were, things were difficult, especially on the ground. There was a great deal of hatred passing between the British and, and the Zionists there in Palestine. So that when the British were finally driven out of the country in 1948, they were very bitter about it, and they slapped a weapons embargo on the emerging Israeli state just as war was coming with its Arab neighbors. So to get people and weapons into Palestine, the Zionists were going to have to work through unofficial channels to get around the British blockade, and they drew on every thread that they could reach. For example, Lyndon Johnson, U.S. president after Kennedy, a Jewish historian from Texas named Louis Gamelach, studied LBJ's early relationship with the Zionists, which went way back. His aunt was a founding member of the Zionist Organization of America. And Gamelach found evidence that LBJ and his friend Jim Novi who was a wealthy Zionist down there in Texas where LBJ operated, were involved together in smuggling weapons into Palestine in crates that were marked for Texas grapefruit. 
Gomelock doesn't really explain how the smuggling was accomplished, but it was not a U.S. government operation. Uh, it was something LBJ was doing on his own in violation of American law. Raising the money to buy large quantities of military hardware and getting that hardware off the books and then shipping it halfway around the world to a country under embargo by the British, that's a major operation Okay, that's handled by uh, not just some guy that you met down at the bar. This is, this is going to be handled by established smuggling outfits. And if you're talking about smuggling in the midst of the total destruction of commerce and infrastructure following the Second World War, you're going to be dealing with organized crime. And it was helpful that Jewish mobsters in the United States and other countries tended to be sympathetic to the Zionists because, well, partly because both groups were at war in different ways with the communists. Another string that the Zionists pulled on was that of a young Jewish war veteran turned import-export businessman from Czechoslovakia, exactly the kind of person who would know how to get things from one place to, to another in the complicated post-war environment. The new communist government in Prague made an agreement to ship weapons, many of them seized from the Germans, to the Zionists in exchange for cash, but they still needed a way to get the gear down to Palestine, and that's where men like our current protagonist, Jan Hulk, who got things from one place to, to another for a living, came in. The weapon shipments from Czechoslovakia that were facilitated by Jan Hook at the time were considered decisive in that first war against the Arabs, the Israeli War of Independence, especially because of the aircraft they delivered, aircraft which were the specific smuggling assignment of Jan Ludwig Hyman Benjamin Hook. Or actually, he had officially changed his name to better fit into British society by this point. So we will call him by his new name now, Robert Maxwell. In 1951, Maxwell, still only 28 years old, really amazing when you think about it, he bought a small publisher of scientific books, and he gained the U.S. and U.K. distribution rights for a much larger continental European publisher of scientific books. I don't know too many of the details of these businesses in the early days, but according to at least two of his biographers, Maxwell had an effective monopoly editing and distributing scientific and engineering journals being translated into English out of Germany and other European countries. And before long, he had built the company into a major publishing house and had become extremely wealthy. In the 1960s, he runs for and wins a seat in the House of Commons, in the early 1980s, he buys a group of six newspapers, including the Daily Mirror. A few years later, he buys Macmillan, one of the big five English-language publishers. He bought the New York Daily News. He tried with the billionaire Charles Bronfman of the Seagram's Liquor Fortune to buy the Jerusalem Post. By the end of the 1980s, Robert Maxwell was one of the most famous men in Britain. He was one of the world's most well-known publishers, and his empire was vast. His net worth, according to Forbes, was in the $1 to $2 two billion range, which is maybe 4 or $5 billion today. At a time when there were a lot fewer billionaires, you know, like now every rando hedge fund manager, college dropout computer programmer has a billion dollars. That was not how it was back then. Was well, a combat veteran, a businessman, a linguist, a smuggler, and an experienced propagandist with contacts across Europe, including behind the Iron Curtain, as well as in Britain and the Middle East, 
Robert Maxwell was obviously very interesting to intelligence agencies after the war and throughout his life. The British Foreign Office and the FBI, for a while, suspected that he might have been working for the Russians, but most people who have researched the topic uh, think this was probably a misunderstanding. You know, Robert Maxwell, it's hard to relate to a guy like this. Uh, he was really this larger-than-life international figure who seemed to have almost perceived himself as a, as a sovereign country. And after all, the leaders of actual sovereign countries kowtow to him all the time, call on him to ask for favors and beg for his support and to draw on his connections around the world. He's not calling them for help. They're calling him for help. And it's definitely true that Maxwell was doing things for the KGB and the Czechoslovakian communists in the 1960s, as did his friend Jeffrey Robinson, a former British MP who's been described as Maxwell's bagman during that same period of time. But Maxwell, I think, would not have felt like he was an asset of Soviet intelligence because he was not some normal citizen. He would have seen himself more like the way he was actually treated, which was as a sort of freelance, unofficial diplomat who, who yeah, is a British citizen, but really he kind of exists in the liminal spaces between these established power structures. The FBI and British Foreign Office probably saw Maxwell sneaking around Eastern Europe meeting with Soviet and KGB officials and thought he might be working on their behalf. But we know today that Maxwell only served two masters, himself and the Zionist State of Israel. His association with Israeli intelligence began with smuggling weapons in the immediate post-war years, and over the years his role grew. As someone who had planes, yachts, contacts across the world, access to important people, and legitimate business interests to provide excuses for international travel and meetings, the Mossad, the Israeli Mossad, put Robert Maxwell to many uses over the years. If the Mossad needed to get a message to the head of the KGB without generating an official record, Maxwell delivered it. If the Mossad needed money for an operation, but it couldn't be seen as coming from them, Maxwell would arrange to make it happen. And in general, he would just keep his eyes and ears, as well as the eyes and ears of the reporters working for him, open for anything that might be of interest to Israeli intelligence. In 1991, a man named Ari ben Menashe approached several British news organizations with some stories about Robert Maxwell. Ben Menashe was an arms dealer and a 10-year veteran of Israeli military intelligence. And he claimed that Maxwell and his foreign editor at the Daily Mirror, Nicholas Davies, were both longtime Mossad agents, and that, among other things, Maxwell had informed the Israeli government of the identity of the Israeli whistleblower, Mordecai Venunu, in 1986, after Venunu approached one of Maxwell's papers with evidence exposing Israel's long-denied nuclear program. Ben Menashe also claimed that Maxwell had helped set a honey trap that led to Venunu being kidnapped in Rome, then shipped off to Israel and thrown in prison. And he also claimed that Robert Maxwell had played a role in what became known as the Iran-Contra affair of the Reagan administration. You know, I remember several years ago, in my former life with the Department of Defense, one time we all had to attend a training evolution 
on how to recognize an insider threat, meaning fellow DOD employee or contractor who might leak classified information to foreign governments or, or other parties that the U.S. government would not want to have it. They tell us to watch out for people who suddenly start showing a lot of money or people who are known to gamble a lot or who owe a lot of money, things that might cause them to want to do something like sell military secrets to another country. As part of this training, they went through maybe a dozen real-life historical examples of people who had done this, like in recent decades, so that we could see the patterns and kind of get a profile of what to look for. But there's this strange, awkward elephant in the room. Out of the dozen or so real-life examples they covered, all but two, maybe three, shared one very obvious characteristic that nobody was mentioning, namely that almost all of these espionage examples that they provided were carried out by Americans of certain ethnic origins who were leaking secrets to their ancestral homeland out of a feeling of national duty or pride. And as they go through three, four examples, seven, eight, nine examples, where this pattern holds, it's becoming a little awkward in the room because there's an obvious question to be asked, but one that no one doing this training really wants to answer. Well, leave it to me. Everyone knows I'm a bit of a troll, but you know my trolling usually has a purpose. The entertainment that I get out of it is just sort of a side effect. Or maybe if I'm being honest, one of the side effects of entertaining myself is that some actual purpose is also served. I like to think so. And so I raise my hand and I point out the obvious, that most of their examples involved Chinese Americans leaking to China, Jewish Americans leaking to Israel, a Russian American leaking to Russia, etc. And I asked how we should handle that information as we go forth to spy and inform on our work colleagues. And you could hear a pin drop in the place. This, by the way, is how you make yourself very popular with the rank and file and very unpopular with upper management. But I wouldn't have poked the bear if I didn't think they were all doing us a genuine disservice by not addressing the question, because it's an important question and, and relevant one. And so the trainer's clearly uncomfortable and doesn't want to answer the question, but at least he was honest. He, he told us not to consider that information at all, to put it out of our minds. I understand his discomfort. I got a bunch of raised eyebrows and dirty looks just for asking the question. It's a hard problem for a multi-ethnic, multicultural, open society like ours. It's a genuinely hard problem. You know, over in China, Chinese intelligence probably has a file on every single person of European ancestry in their entire country. And they're not putting anyone whose parents were... German-American in charge of their military research laboratories. And there aren't many people like that in China anyway. During the Cold War, we were able to call on ideological sympathy to recruit assets from behind the Iron Curtain. But we can't appeal to a foreigner's American patriotism or ethnic pride the way that other countries might be able to call on ethnic pride or, or nationalism to recruit assets in America. Moreover, when you try to ferret out disloyalty in large groups where the pattern of offender is predictable, but the vast majority of people are not a problem, things can go wrong very fast. 
It's really hard to be effective without casting a very wide net, but casting a wide net for potential traitors and saboteurs and subversives has been the cause of many of the ugliest events in human history. You know, a few Japanese Americans help a downed Japanese pilot on the Hawaiian island of Nihau after Pearl Harbor, and pretty soon 120,000 Japanese are being rounded up and thrown into camps. And so I can understand why the trainer just wanted to get through his course without addressing a topic that might not have any good answer, but that we know from experience has many bad ones. But I put him on the horns of a dilemma, and I left him with only two choices, neither of them very good. He could do what he did and tell us not to notice what was very obvious and relevant information, which would undermine his training by showing that the government is not so concerned about protecting military secrets that it would risk offending anyone. Or he could go the other route and risk becoming the subject of an HR complaint for telling us to watch out for those sneaky Ruskies, Chinamen, and Jews. Maybe there's a healthy, acceptable middle ground in there, but I don't blame him for not wanting to find out. But we're not talking about nationalities or religions or ethnicities. We are talking about the behavior of governments and intelligence agencies. If someone brings up MKUltra or CIA interference in other countries, I don't pull up like, how dare you say that about Americans? The CIA is not synonymous with Americans. Just like Chinese state security is not synonymous with Chinese people and the Mossad is not synonymous with Jews. When we refuse to deal honestly with the history for fear of what people might do with this information, we just drive the discussion underground where it rots and festers and its stink reemerges at inconvenient and unexpected moments. Let's say your kid wanders accidentally onto 4chan and someone there says something about the disproportionate number of Jews in the first Soviet governments and secret police. And your kid thinks, well, I've never heard that. I'm going to go ask my teacher, Mrs. Silverstein. Mrs. Silverstein, I read online that a majority of the communist secret police were Jewish. Is that true? And Mrs. Silverstein says, of course that's not true. And if you continue with that nonsense, you're going to end up in the principal's office, young man. He can't even really find much on Google. He has to use DuckDuckGo to get any straightforward information on the topic. And of course, he finds out eventually that it is true and that this guy on 4chan was the only one who didn't lie to him about it. Well, what other secret knowledge does the guy on 4chan have? Oh, he says it, it wasn't just the early Soviet government. He says there's a global conspiracy by powerful Jews against white Christian countries. Well, he would ask Mrs. Silverstein about this or his parents because they should know, but he's already learned that they're either lying or part of the cover-up. And so now he's cut off from outside influences on the subject, and he's in this whole rabbit hole. It's, it's like a mental disease I've seen consume intelligent people before my very eyes. You know, one day someone is criticizing the Mossad, and you're like, right on. Next day he's talking about the USS Liberty, you're like, okay. And before long, you can't bring the guy into mixed company because he cannot get through a conversation without mentioning the Jews. This happens. <laughs> this is, to a great extent, the result of having legitimate discussions on some of these topics controlled and shut down. It's not the result of a failure to control or shut down these discussions. 
And this is a difficult obstacle to getting people to look squarely at the Jeffrey Epstein story. No one would worry much about suggesting that Jeffrey Epstein was being run by Russian intelligence. But everyone seems to know that they're walking on thin ice when they bring up the overwhelming circumstantial evidence of his involvement with Israeli intelligence. But these are just tricks. And, and, and again, not tricks by nations or religions or ethnicities, but by governments and intelligence agencies who want to control discourse for their own purposes. They're just tricks, and we should not fall for them. I think I'm going to go ahead and divide this into two parts here and consider this something of an introduction because we haven't really got into the meat of it at all. In the next episode, though, which will be available to paid subscribers on Substack, which you can sign up for at martyrmade.substack.com for only $5 a month or $50 a year. I will go through the strong circumstantial evidence of Epstein's ties to the Israeli government and also over some known examples of other sexual blackmail schemes, often involving children, by intelligence agencies and organized crime. But, you know, I repeat myself. We'll talk about Iran-Contra and Robert Maxwell's likely assassination, other famous quote-unquote suicides, as well as other examples of pedophile rings having apparent ties to intelligence agencies, because yes, there are others. There are many others, actually. And I'll try not to make it too dark. These episodes are about the shenanigans of intelligence agencies, not the crimes of perverts. And so that's where I'll try to keep the focus. Until next time.
talking. 